0: Tonight we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. But before we get there, I want to get there by way of Acts. So we're going to be in Acts, but you might want to put your finger in 1 Thessalonians and hold it there. And we'll be in Acts before that, but I just wanted to mention that. But we are going to be looking at a wonderful letter tonight that I really believe will speak to us we're here in Hernando, and to our to us is this Longview Point Baptist Church. But you know, one of the things that folks often ask me when I come back from a mission trip, when I come back from Belfouche, where Steph and Kay Carson are, or from Sioux City, where the Carlsons are getting ready to launch their church plant, or Red Lodge, Montana, when we come back. Folks will say, how is the church doing? How are they doing up there? And one of my responses always, usually is, Um, they're doing great. They are averaging 150, or they're getting ready to start, and they've had 20 people come to their informational meeting. But what I want to look at tonight is what are some markers of a healthy church? Sometimes we can get to, to thinking that it might just be numbers, but what are some real markers of a healthy church and some things that we can look at for that, for to answer that question of really how they're doing, so we're going to be looking the first chapter of first Thess- of first Thessalonians. But let me give you a little bit of background uh, to this letter, and you really find the backstory in the book of Acts in Acts seventeen. So I want to look there in Acts seventeen. But you you know of course that Acts follows the Gospels. As we go through the Gospels, you see the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and then. When you get to Acts, what you see there is the rest of the story as the church in its infancy begins to grow and the kingdom expand, beginning there in Jerusalem, and then spreading out over the Mediterranean world as Paul goes on his missionary journeys. And I would encourage you, whenever you are having your quiet time or reading through some of these letters that Paul wrote, like, Thessalonians or to the church in Corinth or the Philippians, flip over to the book of Acts and find that uh, the start of those churches and put it in context. It's a really neat way to kind of set the context and set the tone and see that God's at work in these people's lives and you see the backstory and the setting for so many of these letters. And I'm so thankful that Wade is uh, preaching through Acts on Sundays right now. And I would just encourage you again, a great way to uh, incorporate into your quiet time as we follow Paul's journeys coming up in the book of Acts, read those letters uh, that Paul then later wrote to some of those churches that were the result of those missionary journeys. And you'll see God working in real events, in real people's lives. So we're going to be in Acts 17, and I want to read the first nine verses there as Uh, We see the beginnings of the church in Thessalonica. And Paul had been in Philippi, and the typical uh, uh, thing that happened was he would uh, would go in, he'd speak at the synagogue, there would often be a good initial response, and then run out of town. Sometimes with a beating, sometimes with a stoning, sometimes without. But that kind of is the pattern. And here you see that happening in Philippi, and he travels on that Ignatian Way, To Thessalonica, which was the Roman capital of Macedonia, a really important uh, city of trade and commerce on the Ignatian Way, a major Roman highway, also a port in north-south trade. And that's where we see Paul arriving in this section of Scripture. So let's look at Acts 17, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. A couple of things I want you to see in that little passage that we read before we get to the letter that Paul then writes to these folks is the length of time that they were there, that Paul was there. It's really brief. You know, there's a little time stamp you see in there. He was there for how many Sabbaths? He's there for three Sabbaths, three weeks. And then very soon after that, as reading this, they get kicked out. They're run out of town by this mob. But you do see that good initial response and then this opposition as they're run out, really, in just a brief amount of time. From Thessalonica, Paul traveled on to Berea and then to Athens. And then to Corinth, as you keep reading through Paul's travels here in Acts. And somewhere along that line, uh, probably in about Athens, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. He's worried. What has happened to these brand new brothers and sisters in Christ? They're brand new in their faith. Three, four, five weeks old is all the time that he had to spend with them and to pour into these folks. And he says, i got to send. i got to know. So he sends Timothy back to check on the church in Thessalonica to see how they're going to encourage them to check on them because he's worried about them. And so Paul then travels on to Corinth and he, there he anxiously awaits. What's the news going to be? What's the news going to be from Thessalonica? Have they given up on the faith in the midst of this persecution? Is Jason sick, of, tired of having his house ransacked and money taken from him? Have they given up or are they... Are they continuing in the faith? Are they encouraged? Have they gone back to legalism and uh, quarreling? Or what's the deal? And so he's waiting for this report to come. And what's the word going to be? And you know, that's a good question to ask of ourselves too, I think. What would the word be? If Timothy came to check on us and to give a report, what would the report be? What would we want him to say about the point in Hernando? What kind of folks are they? What kind of church have they become? And what you see here is uh, the response that uh, Timothy gives there to Paul. And it's encouraging. He comes back with a good report that God is at work producing a healthy church. And you see that in 1 Thessalonians. So let's flip now over to 1 Thessalonians and look at the beginning of this letter. You can just imagine the relief and joy and encouragement that Paul felt as he gets this good news back that things are going well in Thessalonica. So let's look at this and read it together. 1 Thessalonians 1 through 10. And what we're reading here is this response to the good report that Paul received. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church in the Thess- of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, There are all sorts of measures of success in this world, aren't there? There are all sorts of measures of success in this world. What are some of them? What are some things that we use to measure success? What about in school? Grades. What about in the workplace? Money. Salary. All sorts of things that are used. Paychecks, promotions, grades. How many new clients you might sign up. There are all sorts of standards that can be used. And you know, sometimes uh, there are standards in the churches. Well, how well is the church doing? Well, how many volunteers do they have? Do they have a new parking lot or not? How many are coming on a Sunday morning? How many in the kids' area? Listen, new parking lots are great. Having new volunteers is wonderful. And each one of those folks coming on a Sunday morning, praise God. That he's bringing folks here. But I want us to look this morning at what God inspired as he had Paul write this letter. What is it that you see praised here in this letter? And I believe that part of the answer is found there in verse 3. In verse 3. What do you see right there in verse 3 that, that Paul celebrates in the lives of these new believers there in Thessalonica? Remembering before our God and Father your Work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, and hope. And you see these themes repeated all through this letter. And it really could, those three things could act as a outline for this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And listen, it's not merely faith and love and hope. It's a faith that works a love that labors and a hope that is steadfast or endures. And I believe that those are wonderful markers of what really uh, makes a healthy church and where you see the, the God blessing and God at work in people's lives. And, uh, you know, aren't you thankful today in the, the place where we live and the society that we're in that we are not dependent on the culture and the news and what's going on in the world to determine whether we're a healthy church or not or that you're a healthy believer or not. Listen, our health as a church and our health as individual believers and followers of Jesus is not dependent on the culture around us. It's dependent on our obedience and our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And if we are that body together here in this place where God has called us to be, it doesn't matter what a Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter what's going on in the community and in terms of cultural decay. We can be as healthy as we are, as we follow and are obedient and are faithful to Jesus Christ. And I am thankful for that. Because, you see, this church was surrounded by a lot of mess that Paul wrote to in Thessalonica. They faced some real hardships. People's houses getting torn up, having to pay fines, all sorts of idols being worshipped in the place where they lived. But they were faithful, and they worked out that faith. And they were loving, and they labored in that love. And they had a hope, and they endured in that hope. And those are what the three things I want to look at briefly tonight, three markers of a healthy church and evidence that God is at work. The first is there that work of faith. And it's a very specific kind of faith. It's not a nebulous faith. It doesn't just, uh, not just faith for faith's sake, faith's sake. It has a person that that faith rests in and is focused on, and that's Jesus Christ, very specifically for in Christ for salvation. And it's not, a, this uh, is not talking here, of course, about works in terms of saving works. We know clearly in Scripture from Ephesians 2 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith not of your own doing, a gift of God, not a result of works. In Romans 3.20, no one will ever be justified or made right by their works. But what we see here is when the issue of salvation is not at stake, we see that faith produces works, right? Remember what James said, faith without works is dead, it's dead, so, what our works is, it brings, it, it it's the, the life of our faith. It's as our faith is alive in us. It, it is worked out in our lives. And you see examples all over Scripture, right? Of works of faith, people working out their faith. Who are some folks in Scripture that you see working out their faith? Where do you see works of faith in Scripture? Who are some folks? Throw out some names. Abraham. When he took a little boy up a mountain, right? Was that faith, a work of faith, having to work out his faith? Or when God said to him, take your family, move to a land, I'll show you. It's a work of faith. Who else? Noah? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Build an ark. All right. I'll work that out in faith, God. I'll, I'll, I'll work on that. Esther. How about Esther? Right? Working out her faith. Having to take a step of faith and having her faith worked out. Or a young man, David, going before a giant. That's a, a work of faith. Incredible work of faith. You see it over and over and over in Scripture. We're to have a faith that moves us. And you see, it's a work of faith is one that's dependent on God. It's dependent on God. God has to move. Has to move. And I see people here at The Point working out their faith. And that encourages me. It blesses me. And that's what I I long to see and pray that God will continue to do here at this church is to work, uh, we'll see works of faith over and over again at The Point. I don't know how many of you all, how many of you all were at the old hardware store? Old hardware store. You remember when LifePoint started? When we were getting ready to start LifePoint? You remember what Wade did? I was there that Sunday. I was in seminary, young seminary student. And I remember Wade announcing, hey, we're going to, got this church plant that's getting ready to go. And what did he ask some people to do? To leave. He asked some folks to leave. And I can't remember, was there a specific number? I honestly don't remember. But he, well, this was a brand new church plant, right? We didn't have a, a great space, or all this wonderful stuff, we were still getting started. And Wade said, I want some of you all to leave. That's uh, that's a work of faith in the life of a new church plant. It is, and I see that in the life of this church. And that is a real marker of health in the life of a church. And I pray that God will continue to use this church to take those kinds of steps of faith. And that's what I believe we are called to do. And listen, when we see a young family go out from our church to go to South Asia to give their lives there and serve as missionaries in South Asia, that's a work of faith, is it not? When a young family goes to Ecuador, takes their family and says, we're going to go invest our lives there and uh, work with uh, folks, youth in Ecuador, that's a work of faith. Or when uh, a young high school girl says, I want to spend my summer in East Asia and China, a work of faith in the life of a young woman. Somebody getting ready to go spend three weeks in Wales to work with youth. Those are works of faith. God is doing that in the lives of people of this church. And my question to you tonight is, how is your faith at work? How is your faith at work? Do you have a faith that's at work pushing you out to take those kinds of steps of faith? So we know that God is working to produce a healthy church when there is a faith in Jesus that we see worked out in real, intangible ways. What else do we see there? First, the work of faith, and then next in verse 3 is that labor of love. Have you all ever heard that expression before, a labor of love? Isn't that a beautiful thing? A labor of love. That was a real labor of love. That's where this comes from. That phrase comes from right here in verse 3. A labor of love. And what that labor is, is arduous toiling. An arduous, wearying toil involving sweat and fatigue. Ministry motivated by a love for others. There's a lot of things that can motivate labor, aren't there? A lot of things can motivate labor. Labor. A whip, <laughs> a belt, <laughs> can motivate labor. Money, you got enough money, you can tell somebody to dig a hole, have them fill it in the next day, right? Uh, flattery might get you some ways in getting somebody to labor. But love's different, isn't it? A labor of love is a very, very different thing. And I don't believe that there's much that people are drawn to more than a true labor of love. Aren't people drawn to a labor of love? Feel ministered to by a labor of love? Want to be a part of a labor of love? I have a friend in Texas who... He is a pastor there, and at their church they do a kindness outreach. They do it very often. They do kindness outreach through their college ministry or high school students, and one evening their college ministry went to the dorms of the local college campus, and they went through the dorms and knocked on all the dorm rooms and said, can I take out your trash? Can we take out your trash? That's all they did. We're with Such and such a church, we want to show God's love in a fun, practical way. Can we take your trash out for you? And they collected trash up and down through those dorms on campus and took the trash and threw it out uh, in the dumpster. And there was one young man who was sitting in his dorm room, and he thought he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He had his TV on and his Xbox controller in his hand, had a drink there right beside him, relaxed, thinking this is it and that group of college students came and said can we take your garbage out and he was intrigued by that and they invited him to their college ministry and he, he came and he ended up giving his life to Christ and becoming a part of the leadership in that uh, college ministry And one of the leaders there, my friend who's the pastor there, asked him, what what was it that drew you to our church? And he was thinking, oh, that they did such a kind thing for me, maybe that's what drew him to the church. But what he said was this, I was sitting in my dorm room doing exactly what I wanted to do, and you guys came in there working, carrying out trash, and you were loving it, and I was drawn to that. I thought, I want to be a part of something where people love each other that much and can be doing something like that, and they're having a better time than I am sitting here playing my Xbox and drinking my beer. And he was drawn to their labor of love. And I just think that we see the results of that in our lives and in the community around us when we step out and act with labor Uh, That kind of labor of love. And you see the results of it here as well. Look at verses 7 and 8. What's the result of their, their works and their labor of love? So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't even need to say anything. So as these folks are working out their faith, as they're laboring in love, the gospel is spreading there where they are. And I pray that as we labor in love, that we would be a model and encouragement to others as well. So how are you laboring in love? How is your faith at work? And how are you laboring in love? And then lastly, I want to look at this steadfastness of hope that we see here. Steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness. Some of you might have that translated endurance. An endurance of hope or a steadfastness of hope. It's the attitude which bears things, not simply with resignation, but with blazing hope. It is the spirit which bears things because it knows that these things are leading to a goal of glory. I don't know what y'all think about when you think of endurance, what comes to mind. Maybe an athlete, long distance runner. But one of the things that comes to my mind when I think of endurance is a Navy SEAL. I am so thankful for those folks that serve in our nation's military, and there are few that are more pressed and better trained and pushed harder in their training than Navy SEALs. And for uh, a long time to become a Navy SEAL, there are all sorts of steps along the way and uh, rigorous training and uh, things that have to be done, and it culminates in something called Hell Week. And I want to read this to you. I pulled this from the uh, U.S. Navy's website, their description of Hell Week that these Navy SEALs go through before they can become a Navy SEAL. Hell Week consists of five and a half days of cold, wet, brutally difficult operational training on fewer than four hours of sleep. Hell Week tests physical endurance, mental toughness, pain and cold tolerance, teamwork, attitude, and your ability to perform work under high physical and mental stress and sleep deprivation. Above all, it tests determination and desire. On average, only 25% of SEAL candidates make it through Hell Week, the toughest training in the U.S. military. It is often the greatest achievement of their lives, and with it comes the realization that they can do 20 times more than they ever thought possible. It is a defining moment, that they reach back to when in combat. They know that they will never, ever quit or let a teammate down. So that's the training, the, the hell week, after they've already, folks, uh, leaders and sergeants and lieutenants and all those have already weeded out the weak, the unqualified. Everybody that arrives there at that point in their training is qualified. But how many make it through? 25%. Make it through that, even though they're all qualified, young, healthy, ready to go. And what is it that gets those folks through? It's that endurance, right? Do you know how you drop out of that Hell Week training? In the middle of the courtyard, every day where they have their meetings and where they come together, there's a bell, a brass bell. And all you have to do from carrying those big boats on their head and doing those sit-ups in the surf and carrying logs and whatever else they do, all they have to do is take off their helmet, set it down, and ring the bell, and walk out, and they're done. And 75% of those folks that go through that training, they do, they take off their helmet, they set it down, and they ring the bell, I'm done. But 25% endure. They endure because they want to see it through. They see that goal, and they want to press on and folks this life requires some strong endurance doesn't it aren't there days when you just want to take that helmet off (laughs) and go ring that bell and say i'm out i'm done there's some days like that right but god's calling us to an endurance of hope and what's it based on where does that kind of endurance come from Well, look at what it says there in verse 3. It's not just a a random hope, an unsure hope. It's a steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. A hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Based on the certainty of His return, He's coming back. He's going to gather His people. He's going to take us home. It's that kind of hope that He's prepared a place for us, that He's given us life, Given us purpose, and we can endure. And my prayer is that we will have that same kind of steadfast hope. And There's nothing that should cause us to lose our trust in the promises of God. And I would encourage you, if you ever are doubting or needing some hope, read through the rest of this book right here, First Thessalonians, and you'll see great cause for hope as he speaks of the returning king, that he is coming again. But so God is at work to produce a healthy church. Work, labor, and steadfastness. Endurance. Those kind of sound heavy. Heavy things. Kind of a grit your teeth and kind of get through it. But that's not what this is talking about right here. It's not just a grin and bear it kind of thing. And it's not that we're to be people or a church marked by our work or by our labor or by our endurance but rather by our faith, love, and hope. And that out of those things, out of those things as we're filled with the Spirit, comes our steadfastness and the work and the labor out of the overflow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And where do we look to? What's the ultimate picture of each one of these things? Where have you seen a labor of love that's incomparable? Where have you seen a steadfastness of hope and a certainty? When he set his face on Jerusalem. Where have you seen a work of faith that is unequaled? It's in Christ, right? The ultimate picture of each one of these things is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we look to him, and we preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis, and are reminded of what he's done, we can then have these things in our own life that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit, and working these things out in our own lives as we look to him. So, and I just want to end with this. Um, you know, as uh, Paul wrote this letter to them, there, it, it all began. Where did it all begin for these folks? This work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. It began in verse 9. It began in verse 9, and you've got a beautiful picture of the gospel right there in verses 9 and 10. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's repentance, isn't it? Turning, turning from idols to God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised for the dead, from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Have you turned from idols? Have you turned from idols to serve the living and true God? Are you waiting eagerly, his son, whom he raised from the dead? Are you eagerly waiting for him? Thankful that he's delivered you from the wrath to come? If you haven't, don't leave here tonight without coming and talking to me or find somebody to talk to. Because that's where it all begins. The work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope, they cannot be had apart from a turning and a trusting in Jesus Christ. That's where it all begins. That's where it all begins.